are listening to the podcast of Trinity Grace Church Williamsburg. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in Brooklyn. For more information on our church, please visit tgcwilliamsburg.com. teaching text is taken from the second book of Samuel. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel we're bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants, as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people of Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. Good to see you this morning. Thank you, Lee, for reading that. I always love when Lee reads the teaching text. Thank you, Lee. Um, I just want to say that um, it is such, it's such a gift to me to be part of this community, and it's a gift to be um, able to share with you this morning. So I don't take that lightly. I'm really grateful to be here this morning and to be continuing on our series on a house of prayer in Brooklyn. And this is a super exciting season for us as a church because very soon we're going to be opening literal doors on a house of prayer on Grand Street in Williamsburg, which is super exciting. And so over the next couple of months, we just want to spend some time digging a little deeper into the kind of posture that truly unlocks the power of prayer and the effects that those prayers have on a city. 
So last week, Tyler gave us the context for the whole series, starting with the return of the Ark of the Covenant, which was symbolic of the presence of God to the people of Israel. And it had been neglected in former times under the leadership of King Saul, but was now being restored by King David. And in doing so, David was raising up a tabernacle again, a house of prayer in Jerusalem. And the effects that this house of prayer had on the nation were dramatic, because as Tyler said last Last week, the presence of God in the temple always equals the kingdom of God in the city. So if you missed last week, I would highly recommend listening to that because he covered a lot of ground that will give you a really helpful biblical backdrop for what we're talking about this whole series. Today, I want to talk a little bit more about the kind of leadership that King David and ultimately Jesus modeled for us and to compare that with some of the qualities that we see in other people in scripture at that same moment in time where competing kingdom values were being represented. So we'll spend some time reflecting on David, also Michael, who we met in this teaching text, Jesus, and also the Pharisees. And my hope is that by drawing these comparisons, it will help us to honestly reflect on ourselves and the type of leadership that we find ourselves following. So we learned last week that the beauty of David's house of prayer was that everyone was invited. There was no restriction. And we see the same thing in the ministry of Jesus. There was an open invitation to all. When Jesus died, we're told in scripture that the curtain in the temple, the curtain that separated the holy of holies where only the priests could go because it was believed to house the presence of God. The curtain separated that from the rest of the temple where anyone could be. And when Jesus died, that curtain was torn in two, giving us a very clear picture that the presence of God would no longer be confined. It would no longer be restricted to a certain place for the chosen few. The presence of God was being unleashed and made available to all people everywhere who would trust in the resurrection life of Jesus and be filled with his indwelling spirit. So there is no restriction that God places on us entering his presence today, on us being transformed by his love. And yet, as I've been praying for us um, for today and preparing for today, the thing that has been stirring in my heart for us from this passage is what gets in the way of us experiencing this freely available presence of God? What competing values exist even within me that may cause a block in me experiencing more of God? Are there ways in which I am getting in the way of myself being transformed by the presence of God? And how can I posture myself in such a way that leads to a more fluid expression of his kingdom? And why don't I pray for us as we jump in? Come Holy Spirit. Jesus, we already know that you're in the room. And we just invite you to come in ever-increasing measure amongst us. God, if your presence doesn't go with us, I'd rather not even say a word today. Lord, would you come and speak to us? Have your way amongst us. Give us ears to hear what you want to say. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's take a look at our teaching text and reflect a little bit on King David. So the passage opens by telling us that David is bringing up the Ark of God from Obed-Edom, and he's going to place it in the tent that he's pitched for it in the center of Jerusalem. 
Now, there's something contextual that I think is important to say about this passage, and it's that the reason that David is going back to Obed-Edom to get the ark is because three months earlier, he'd intentionally left it there. So let me tell you what happened. David and many of his men had gone to the house of Abinadab in Judah to bring back the Ark of the Covenant where it had been for some years. We're told in 1 Chronicles 13 that the Israelites were not accustomed to consulting the Ark in the days of King Saul. And now that David was king, he wanted to restore it to its rightful place and raise up a tabernacle once more. So they were bringing it back, rejoicing and celebrating. And at one point, a man called Uzzah reached out and touched the ark because the oxen that were pulling the cart had stumbled. And as a result of him touching the ark of the covenant, Uzzah died right there next to the ark. And David was so afraid and so shaken by this happening that he was unwilling to take the ark of the Lord back to the city of David. He said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? which always reminds me of Frodo, if there's any Lord of the Rings fans out there. And so instead, he left it at the house of Obed-Edom, and it remained there for three months. I think it's really easy to picture David in our teaching text, you know, rejoicing before the Lord without a care of the, in the world, and for that to create distance between us and him by allowing us to think, oh, you know what, that's just his personality. You know, like he killed a bear when he was a shepherd, he defeated Goliath when he was a child, he's a poet, he's a musician, of course he's going to have this kind of outward expression of dancing and leaping before the Lord. I think it's really important for us to remember the humanity of David, that the same man who is leaping and dancing before the Lord in our teaching text was so crippled with fear a few verses prior that he went back to Jerusalem empty-handed. Mission, prayer, tent, recovery 1.0 failed. And I wonder what David's process was like in those three months. How did he move from reluctance to action from fear to faith, from worry to this kind of outward expression of worship. Scripture tells us that he heard of the blessing of the Lord that came upon the place where the ark dwelt. And I imagine David heard that and was jolted into remembering that nothing was more important to him than being where the presence of God was, that he must trade everything to go after that and that fear could not get in the way. And that is the context for the celebration that we're witnessing in this passage. So when I read this, I don't just see a man whose personality might naturally bend towards outward expressions of joy and worship. I also see a man who has journeyed with fear and disappointment and failure and has chosen the pathway of humility and the pathway of praise. This outward expression of worship was not just hype and emotionalism. This expression of joy and celebrating had cost him something. It was an act of faith and courage. It was not devoid of fear and forethought. It was not cheap. It takes faith to rejoice. It takes faith to praise in the midst of fear and uncertainty. And I find myself wondering, in what ways might these two attempts at bringing back the ark have been different? In our passage, which is Ark Rescue Mission 2.0, we read that after six steps, David sacrificed a bull and a calf. And I see this as an expression of holy fear and humility and reverence for the presence of God. It's a way of God saying, I recognize, or sorry, it's a way of David saying, I recognize that I am not entitled to this. This is a gift of God. 
It's like every few steps, he's reminding himself and his people that God is holy, God is mystery, God is beyond everything that we can fathom. And David may be his appointed king, but he is not God. There is nothing about this that David is taking lightly. Last week, Tyler talked about the significance of David wearing the ephod, which were these priestly garments that David actually had no right to wear because he wasn't a priest. And the reason for that is that the people of Israel were divided up into 12 tribes. And God had set apart one tribe, the tribe of the Levites, to be the priests. And David was from the tribe of Judah. And I found myself wondering whether David wore those priestly garments during his first attempt at recovering the ark. Now, obviously, this is pure speculation, but I don't think he did. I like to imagine that the pain of that moment with Uzzah dying because he touched the Ark of the Covenant took David on a journey of greater reflection, of greater humility, and that his choice of a priestly ephod on that day in exchange for his royal robes was an outward expression of that inward journey. David had found freedom and joy in the place of humbling himself before Almighty God. Now let's take a look at Michael. One of the verses that stands out most to me in this whole passage is verse 16. It says this, as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. I want you to imagine the scene. The scripture tells us that all of Israel were in this procession bringing up the Ark of the Covenant. There were shouts of joy and the sound of trumpets. At the start of the chapter, um, the first time David is going up to get the Ark, it says that he had 30,000 men with him. So we can only imagine the size of this crowd rejoicing together with David, their king, leading the procession, stripped of his royal robes, not traveling on a throne, being pulled along by his royal cavalry, but dancing barefoot among the crowd. And then imagine that upper window of the palace. Michael, David's wife, from a height, looking down, safe distance from the crowd, spectating and judging rather than participating, watching with utter disdain from her cold and lofty perch. And after David has set up the ark in its place and blessed his people, he returns home to bless his family and he's welcomed with these words of sarcasm from his wife. How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. Going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. Michael was the youngest daughter of King Saul. Now you might know that King Saul was king before David. And Michael represents the leadership of Saul. She is the last remnant of the house of Saul, the one who opposed David's kingship. And I think naming her here as the daughter of Saul is significant because it's a way of setting up a contrast between the spirit of the house of Saul in which Michael was brought up and that of David. Saul had become king primarily because the Israelites felt a need for a military commander to lead them in battles. In Saul's kingship, we see a man who repeatedly sins against God, and yet in his pride, he refuses to admit fault and own his own wrongdoing, and instead, he just kind of continues on disobeying the commands of God. As a result, worship of the Lord deteriorated at large during his reign. 
And when the prophet Samuel confronted Saul in 1 Samuel 15, Saul admitted, I feared the Lord, or that I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Saul lived for the praise and glory of the people, a glory he wanted to hoard for himself, and ultimately this pride was his downfall. And as the daughter of the house of Saul, Michael was also proud. She prized her royal dignity. She cared about the appearance of royalty. She'd grown up at the king's table with all the privilege that comes with that, and she's unable to fathom this expression of humility from her husband. She also appears to have no grasp of his desire to pursue God's presence and worship and celebrate before him. And I think this picture of Michael watching from a window from a height looking down embodies what pride actually is. Pride is a high or inordinate opinion of one's own dignity, importance, merit, or superiority. Thomas Aquinas and Augustine called it the essence of all sin. C.S. Lewis referred to pride as the great sin. He said, pride always means enmity. It is enmity. And if you're not familiar with that word, it's really a word similar to hostility, when we set ourselves up as an enemy to someone. And not only enmity between man and man, but enmity to God. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man or woman is always looking down on things and people. And as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. The Bible has a lot to say about pride. In the book of Proverbs alone, there are many references to pride, with maybe the most well-known being pride goes before a fall. The rest of that verse is particularly relevant, I think, to David and Michael. It says, it is better to be of a lowly spirit among the poor than to divide the spoil with the pride. Pride meant that Michael was seeing, but not actually seeing. All she could see was a king who was debasing himself by stripping himself of the outward expressions of his majesty, and that was entirely unacceptable to her. Let's take a look at David's response. It was before the Lord who chose me. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. David was making it very clear, this is not about you. And it's also not about me. This is all about God. He is my priority and I will celebrate him because this is my response of love before the one who loves me and has chosen me. And you know what? I've barely even scratched the surface. I'm gonna become even more foolish, even more undignified. I will trade everything for the presence of God and I don't care what that looks like to you. And notice that he doesn't say, I will be humiliated in your eyes. He says, I will be humiliated in my own eyes. It's like David recognizes that he will even surprise himself at where this response of love and devotion will take him. And remember all this three months after he was so crippled with fear that he aborted his first attempt to bring the ark back. I wonder if you think of your own life, your own relationship with God right now today, however you might describe that. Three months from now, what would that be? February, March, April. What would surprise you about yourself in terms of how you might express your response of God's love for you? 
I think it's important for us to reflect on the kind of leadership that brings about the kingdom in the city. Which of these postures ushered in the presence of God and made way for his rule and reign? Was it the way of Saul and Michael or the way of David? Was it the way of strength or the way of weakness? The way of pride or the way of humility? And which way do you find yourself having an appetite towards? Humility brought David joy and freedom. Pride kept Michael standing coldly at a distance. Humility allowed David to be uninhibited, undignified, dancing among the people as one of them. And pride kept Michael spectating and judging at the sidelines. Last week, we listened to that beautiful audio clip of the older gentleman who was talking about revival, and he said, revival touches everyone. And as I've been reflecting on this passage this week, I have found myself wondering, did revival touch Michael? Did the effects of that house of prayer that were touching the nation at large manage to penetrate beneath the hard exterior of Michael's personal pride? When I think of Michael and her posture at the window and this sort of picture of the safety of cynicism, I'm reminded of this quote by Teddy Roosevelt. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat." There was, of course, another king who also stripped himself of his majesty, who is called our eternal high priest and who was also met with scorn and disdain, both by those close to him and those who spectated and judged from a distance. Scripture says this of Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Last week, Tyler drew comparisons between the coronation parade of David in our teaching text and the the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, which marked the beginning of his last week and his journey towards the cross. It's recorded in all four gospel accounts, but in Matthew 21, it says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Sion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks in them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. This procession like David's also modeled the way of humility the way of weakness and foolishness and joy, especially when we compare it to the other procession that entered Jerusalem on the same day. 
Did you know that there was a competing parade on that day? On the same day that Jesus entered Jerusalem, that we remember as Palm Sunday, so did the Roman governor enter Jerusalem, as was custom. In Marcus Borg's book, The Last Week, he describes that on that day, entering Jerusalem from the east, came a peasant procession. Jesus riding on a donkey, cheered by his followers with a message about the good news of the kingdom of God. While on the opposite side of the city, from the west, came Pilate, the Roman governor, His was a military procession demonstrating imperial Roman power and proclaiming the power of empire. It was probably the kind of procession that Michael might have felt a sense of pride in had David chosen to do it that way. Cavalry, soldiers, weapons, banners, armor. Jesus was making a very clear statement that the kingdom he was bringing was an entirely different one. Borg describes it as a prearranged counter procession one that demonstrated an alternative vision. Jesus is saying, I am a king bringing a new kingdom with values that are completely contrary to the way of Caesar, where the way of weakness and holy foolishness is called virtue and celebrated as triumphal by heavenly standards. In both of these accounts, we see competing kingdoms with competing values, one of pride and one of humility. One demonstrating the power and strength of appearances and the other demonstrating weakness and foolishness and a disregard for reputation. We've talked a little bit about the way that Michael, representing the house of David, opposed the leadership of David and the values he wanted to uphold in his kingship. And now I want us to spend some time reflecting on those who opposed the leadership and kingship of Jesus who displayed a similar kind of cold, prideful, judgmental spectatorship. The Pharisees were members of an ancient Jewish sect. They were the religious elite of the day because they were distinguished by their strict observance of the law of Moses. Pharisees were commonly held to have pretensions of their superior holiness. They emphasized the letter of the law and they obeyed it with pride, but completely missed the spirit of the law. For example, we see their disdain of Mary, who, similar to King David, made a very public display of her love and affection for Jesus by pouring perfume on his feet. When Jesus made his triumphal entry and the crowd shouted, Hosanna, the Pharisees told him, rebuke your disciples. To which Jesus replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Jesus was a king who was ushering in a very different kind of kingdom than they expected. And so in their pride, they couldn't accept him as the one they were waiting for. The religion of the Pharisees was ritual without presence. It was external, but their hearts were not transformed. And so Jesus called them hypocrites. And the root of hypocrisy is pride because it is the antithesis of humility. The harshest words that Jesus ever spoke in scripture were to the Pharisees. In fact, it seems like Jesus was harsher about the sin of pride than anything else. Listen to this from Matthew 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. On the contrary, Jesus said, blessed are the humble, for they shall inherit the earth. 
The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus' words to the Pharisees are harsh because there was so much at stake. Those who followed the Pharisees and the scribes were being kept from following God. Jesus actually said that the Pharisees were shutting the door of the kingdom of heaven. Pride is really serious. Pride can display itself very obviously or it can be incredibly subtle. So before we all go drawing a line with Michael and the Pharisees on one side and all of us in our pride on the other, it might be worth us asking ourselves, in what way does pride exhibit itself in me? C.S. Lewis said the best way to measure pride is this. Start with a simple test. The more pride you have, the more you dislike it in others. In the past week, what have been the moments when you've obviously or subtly looked down on something or someone? Maybe it was related to how they expressed their relationship with God. Maybe it was status or race, appearance, gender, age, intellect, character, education. Maybe it was related to sin that you saw clearly in their life but failed to see in your own. Some years ago, I was spending time with God and I was thinking through um, things that had changed in my life since I'd started to take my relationship with God more seriously, um, things that I'd given up, sin patterns that had changed. And I think I was maybe having a moment of feeling a little bit self-congratulatory. And I felt very clearly God speak to me in my heart. And he said firmly, yet very tenderly, yes, dear, but you've always had an easier time giving up your sin than your righteousness. And this floored me. And I want to be clear, I don't have any righteousness of my own. But in that moment, the Holy Spirit was speaking to me in a very personal way, and I got the message loud and clear. He was putting his finger on something right at the very core of me, and the way that my own pain and shame had caused me to try really hard so that I could be good enough in and of myself, that if I worked hard enough and I did all the right things, I wouldn't actually need God to save me. I could feel a sense of superiority in my great independence and a sense of pride in knowing that I was good just on my own. God exposed this undercurrent in my heart that was a works-based mentality rather than grace-based. And in that moment, God exposed the depth of my pride and self-righteousness. And at first, it felt a lot like pain and humiliation. And then it felt a lot like love because I knew that he was only exposing it so that he could heal me and bring me into greater freedom and set my feet on the path of humility, which is the only way to truly know him. And I wanna give you a couple of simple examples of how this subtly had played out, specifically related to the public expression of worship, because that goes in line with what we're talking about with David and Michael. So when I was a teenager, I remember another Christian telling me about their church experience, um, about prophecy and healing and speaking in tongues. And I just thought in my heart, no, I don't believe all that. Because if that were possible, then I would have already experienced it. I would not be on the outside of that. I had a puffed up opinion of my insider status with God. 
pride very subtly made me elevate myself above others, thinking that I was better than them. It made me think that the gifts of God were something that I was entitled to or could get through my good works and self-effort. And it made me totally miss the truth that grace is unmerited favor. And I think for quite a while, my pride had me on the outside looking in spectating and judging rather than participating because that would have required the humiliation of me admitting that maybe others had something that I didn't. I remember then some years later being in a church where I was beginning to see for myself this outworking of the Spirit in the lives of other people around me, seeing people worship and express their love for God, probably similarly to David, and deep down realizing that there was something there that I hadn't experienced before and perhaps starting to have a little bit more humility. So I was at this meeting, um, there was a guest speaker who was very well known and he'd come to visit Dublin and he spoke for ages about how God desired for us to encounter him and experience him and we moved into a time of ministry. And during the ministry time, I was feeling absolutely nothing. And then this guy walked in who had not been there for the service, walked to the front, Someone prayed two words over him, and then boom, he was on the floor having this very tangible, visceral experience with the Holy Spirit. And I remember thinking, you have got to be kidding me. He didn't even come for the sermon. I put in the time, I showed up, I am more entitled to this than he is. Didn't Jesus say, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees? In the Bible, yeast is often a metaphor for pride and arrogance. Yeast causes dough to rise, and you only need a very small amount of it. And just like yeast puffs up the dough, so pride, when there is too much of it, causes all sorts of problems in us. Pride keeps us seeing but not seeing. Just a smidgen of Pharisee in me brought about all types of ugliness. And a tiny bit of Pharisee or Michael in you can take something that is supposed to be beautiful and celebrated and ruin it entirely. One of the parables that Jesus told to reveal the pride of the Pharisees is found in Matthew 20, and it's called the parable of the workers in the vineyard. And the landowner goes out one morning and he hires a bunch of workers telling them that he'll pay them a denarius, which is a certain amount of money. And they all agree. And then he goes back out around 9 a.m. He does the same thing. He goes back at 12, brings some more workers back. He goes back out again at 3 and again at 5 p.m. And he invites all of them to come and work in his vineyard. And then at the end of the day, he gathers all the workers and he gives them all a denarius. And those who had worked for him all day were furious. How can you make us equal? How can you give the ones who only work for 30 minutes the same as you're giving us? You should be paying us more. And the landowner says, didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Or are you envious that I am being so generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. And if you're anything like me, you might listen to that, and the pride that lurks deep down at the core of you might raise its head and say, hey, that's not fair. The ones who work harder and longer are the ones who deserve more. Your sense of entitlement might start to bubble up. I often felt very similarly when I read the story of the prodigal son, and I could relate to the, the elder brother who was so angry that his frivolous kid brother was getting celebrated in a way that he hadn't, even though he'd worked so hard. Both of these parables stress God's unmerited grace rather than any sense of earning 
But pride can often see generosity as unfairness. And I want to say that most often lurking behind our pride and cynicism is pain and disappointment. I wonder what pain Michael had journeyed with that had caused her to be unable to see the beauty in David's expression of worship. What caused her to find it safer to stay on the inside looking out? Two verses after the end of our teaching text, it says, and Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. In scripture, having children is a mark of blessing, of prosperity, of the favor of the Lord. Michael journeyed with the pain of feeling on the outside of that for her whole life. Everyone has a story. I remember during particularly painful times in my journey with God where I was wrestling with a lot of sadness, disappointment, pain, and I'd see other people celebrating seemingly so easily in worship and thinking, well, that's only because they haven't experienced pain and tragedy. And I became very cynical of any outward expression of joy. And I can see how pride was at work in me even in those moments, how pride could take my tragedy and make it even more tragic by allowing it to feed a sense of superiority in me. Our stories are complex. Pride is often a response to personal pain, but it's a pain that I believe God desperately wants to heal so that we can live in greater freedom from pride. I believe God is calling us to be a church that lives under grace, that celebrates grace, that worships with joy and leaping and dancing because everyone is experiencing God's incredible grace. And you might be wondering, Gemma, what on earth does all of this have to do with a series on prayer? Well, prayer begins with humility. You could say that humility is the gateway to prayer because only when we acknowledge our poverty, our need for a savior, can we give permission for the rule and reign and redemption that that savior wants to bring in our lives. Prayer is the ultimate expression of, I need you, God. Humility recognizes that I in and of myself am inadequate, but in Christ I am righteous. As John 15 says, apart from me, Christ, you can do nothing. Therefore, prayer says, I need the power of God. I need the strength of God. I need the wisdom of God, the grace of God. In humility, we recognize our total, our total dependence on God. It also means recognizing that everything we have comes from him. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, for who makes, who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Many of the saints and desert fathers have said that the most foundational of all virtues is humility. Because without a dose of humility, we aren't open to the God's love and grace. Isaac the Syrian said that what salt is to food, humility is to the virtues. St. Basil went so far as to call humility the all-encompassing virtue because it contains within itself all the others. Father Andre Luf was a Trappist monk who wrote a book called The Way of Humility. And in it, he makes it clear that humility is a state of grace. It's a gift, a gift that is painful because it reminds us of our own limitations and awareness that we cannot by ourselves arrive at wholeness and a purified heart. He says that the origin of the word humility is the Latin word for nutrient matter in the soil. 
And that humility is not only the gateway to the kingdom of God, but it also undergirds and infuses everything we do in our pursuit of him. The poet T.S. Eliot summed it up like this, the only wisdom we can hope to acquire is the wisdom of humility. Humility is endless. So the cultivation of humility is vital for our spiritual formation and it is the only remedy for our pride. So how do we do it? Where do we start? C.S. Lewis said, if anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize what is pride and a biggish step too. At least nothing whatever can be done before it. So we name it, we confess it, And perhaps the most appropriate posture for that is on our knees because it is the complete opposite of watching from a window looking down. If I were to ask you to picture someone praying, many of us would probably say you picture someone on your knees. Um, I lived with my grandparents during grad school and I remember night after night as I would be getting ready to go to bed, I would walk past their room with the door ajar and always be moved by the sight of them on their knees in prayer. And in that posture of humility, we gaze upon Jesus. And as Teresa of Avila puts it, by gazing at his grandeur, we get in touch with our own lowliness. It's in that place that we experience his love and grace and mercy. And that gives us cause to rejoice, like David, to celebrate and dance with joy before the Lord. So how do you want to posture yourself before God this morning? Which posture ushers in the kingdom? Which of these leaders are you emulating in your life? Will you be strong and dignified, watching from a window, prioritizing appearances, or do you desire to be weak and foolish on your knees or dancing before the Lord? If you recognize a similar spirit to Michael or the Pharisees within yourself this morning, just know that you're not alone. Pride to a greater or lesser extent lurks in all of us. I personally am a recovering Pharisee. And the antidote is humility. And that starts simply with coming to Jesus and acknowledging our need of him. In Matthew 11, as we close, Jesus says, come to me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. I love the message version of these verses. It says, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. So today you come to the one who is gentle and humble in heart where you can recover your life as you experience the grace and the love of Jesus. As you lay down your pride, your works-based religion, your self-effort, and humbly acknowledge your need for the saving love of Jesus. And I hate to break it to you, but if you want to become free of the idol of pride, it probably will be a little bit painful and humiliating because it will require making yourself vulnerable. And I'm not going to prescribe for you this morning what that might look like for you. But if you know that this message is for you, then I'm going to presume it's going to involve needing to get out of your seat at some point. Maybe coming to kneel, maybe spending time in confession and prayer with someone on our prayer team. 
we come with the posture of David at his coronation. We're willing to trade anything for more of the presence of God in our lives. We'll embrace the fear. We'll embrace the humiliation because opening ourselves up to God is always, always worth it. Why don't we stand together? We'll just take a little bit of time to be quiet and just still ourselves. And whatever posture is helpful for you to do that, you might want to close your eyes, you might want to hold out your hands. We're just going to invite the Holy Spirit to come. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Lord Jesus. We invite you to search us, God. Show us, Lord, what is coming in the way of us experiencing more of you. Show us how to follow you in the way of humility. Last week I had this picture in worship that I didn't actually feel I was supposed to share, but I do feel like I should share it now. I had been thinking about uh, just the colossal mess that was left in our living room when we dragged out our Christmas tree and how it required me and John and our four-year-old all sweeping it up. And I had this picture of this room with just mess all over the floor. And I saw so many people on their hands and knees with a dustpan and brush. And the mess represented our collective sin and mess and brokenness. And the beauty of this picture was that those on their hands and knees sweeping didn't have any sense of, well, this is your mess and this is my mess. I'm going to take care of my brokenness over here, but you're responsible for your own over there. No, this was an invitation from the Lord to, to be a community who say, your mess is my mess and your brokenness is my brokenness, and I'll be here on my hands and knees in prayer, crying out before the Father for healing and breakthrough for you and for me until we're all living in greater freedom. Because when I experience the love of God for me and all of my weakness and limitations, then I also learn to love and have grace for others in their weakness and limitations, and that is God's invitation to us as a community. So in whatever way God is stirring you this morning to respond, in just a minute we're going to worship, the communion table will be open, and we're just going to create some space for us to do that. Maybe the communion servers would begin to come forward. The prayer rugs are here, the perfect place for confession and humility. Um, maybe the prayer team could also come forward now so that you can receive anyone who might want to receive prayer this morning. As we come to the table to do what Jesus taught us to do in remembrance of him, we'll take the bread, which reminds us of his body broken for us, and we dip it in the cup of juice, which reminds us of his blood spilled for us for the forgiveness of sins. We all come equal before him this morning, all in need of a savior, all in need of his grace. So anyone who wants to acknowledge their need of a savior is welcome to the table this morning. On the night when Jesus celebrated the Last Supper with his disciples, he told them that one among them would betray him. And as each of them dipped the bread in the cup, they said these words, Is it I, Lord? 
And as we approach the table this morning with all of this talk of pride in our minds, it's probably a really fitting question for all of us to ask. Is it I, Lord? Is there something in me that you want to expose today? And would you take me by the hand and lead me in the way of humility, the way that ushers in your kingdom, bringing life and hope and joy and celebration? If so, Lord, thank you because you discipline those you love. And that gives me cause to celebrate too. So come and feast the gifts of God for the people of God and use this time for whatever God is prompting you to do. Let's worship together. Thank you.